the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Thursday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us, as always. Uh, please follow the program at danproftshow.com and on social media at danproftshow, as well as just my name, at danproft. I'm on Instagram, too. I think it's reversed, at prof, slash, at prof Dan on Instagram. Uh, it, one of the things we try to do differently on this show than um, many other programs is uh, not get obsessed with uh, electoral politics, the horse race elements of it, uh, you know, Joe Biden and Kenosha. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But there are things that are more important and uh, more indicative of lasting challenges for America. And one of those things is what's happening within faith communities. Uh, particularly, I'll just focus on the faith community I'm a part of, which is the Catholic community. Uh, this has taken many forms in the not-so-distant past, including, of course, the sex abuse scandal. But uh, during COVID-19, as we've talked about on this show, with theologians, I mean, where, what, who are the people that have stepped up in defense of religious liberty and against uh, unconstitutional in many instances, infringements on religious liberty by the state, treating religious institutions differently than other institutions when it came to lockdown policies, for example. But that pales in comparison to what the pastor at St. Francis Xavier in New York did at Mass this past weekend. His name is Kenneth Bowler, and uh, his 11.30 a.m. Mass on Sunday, uh, he closed with uh, essentially turning the uh, Nicene Creed into the DNC platform. Listen to this. Do you affirm that white privilege is unfair and harmful to those who have it and to those who do not? Yes. Do you affirm that white privilege and the culture of white supremacy must be dismantled wherever it is present? Yes. Will you strive to understand more deeply the injustice and suffering white privilege and white supremacy cause? Yes. Yes. Will you strive to eliminate racial prejudice from your thoughts and actions so that you can better promote the racial justice efforts of our church? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Eric Metaxas, friend of the show and uh, great uh, Christian thinker and author, went on with uh, Tucker Carlson on his program last night to respond to what you heard, what you just heard in part, and that was just in part from Pastor Kenneth Bowler, by the way, in terms of the production value. Uh, as he was ticking off the DNC talking points and having parishioners echo his sentiments, there was a screen with pictures of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and others to you know, further sensationalize and politicize mass. If they had a swastika on the altar, it would be no different. Churches have always, Christians have always been at the forefront of fighting racism and slavery. There is no question 
about that. We need to understand that the civil yes. rights movement in this country and the abolition movement in Europe and in this country was led by Christians. What we're seeing here is something else entirely. The people uh, who are using these new terms, systemic racism or white privilege, these are Marxists. These people not only don't believe in God, they hate God, and on the website, the BLM website, they reject uh, just about everything a Christian would say. So what they are doing now, it's a power play. They want to hollow out the church from the inside because the real church is their enemy. This kind of a church that will uh, uh, do this kind of nonsense, of course, is perfect for them. But we saw this, unfortunately, I, I wrote a book about Bonhoeffer, being a Christian in the 30s, seeing the Nazis do this. In other words, they didn't come and say, hey, we want you to worship the devil, hey, we're atheists, hey, we don't believe in God. They would come in and they would effectively co-opt the churches, but force the churches to play along just enough so that slowly they could confuse people and take over. And what we're seeing right now is exactly that. Uh, it's a strong statement. It would have been no different had there been a, a swastika on the altar. Pope Benedict uh, observed that uh, the devil doesn't come dressed as the devil. He comes dressed as a false good. And uh, what you heard from Pastor Kenneth Bowler at St. Francis Xavier, which, by the way, I believe is Anton Scalia's alma mater. Uh, and and I, su I suspect it was his parish as well in terms of school. Just talk about spinning in one's grave. But what, what you heard from him is the false good, this sentimentality around race. But you have to think about it a little bit. What is he saying? You have to atone for being white. Being white is a sin. Well, um, Father, I thought we were all created in the image of God, so how can my color, black, white, or other, be a sin? I mean, this is the end of the road for identitarian politics and the end of Christianity, if that's where you're going to allow priests and uh, faith leaders to take various faith traditions, starting with Christianity and, in my case, Catholicism. Metaxas uh, issued a, an appropriate clarion call to pastors and priests and Christians across America. I want to say to every pastor, every Christian in America, this is something, if you do not reject this with everything you have, you are bringing about the death of Christian faith in America, which, by the way, is the only hope for people who think racism is wrong. It is only the Bible that says we're made in God's image. Ask right. Marxists if they believe in God's image. Uh, ask what did Karl Marx say about racists? He was a vicious racist, Karl Marx. So Marxists are just doing this to get power. They have no values. They couldn't care less about whether we're made in God's image. They don't believe in it. But they are using pastors like this and churches like this. And let me say something else in addition to that. And all that is correct. Metaxas was spot on. I mean, again, the Bonhoeffer story is a perfect one, and it's interesting that uh, Eric wanted to go there, and I don't think it's illegitimate. The history of totalitarian regimes is all of these civic institutions, be they secular or religious, fold in with the state. Bonhoeffer was one of the few Lutheran priests who refused to go along with the Reich. The majority of the Lutheran church did go along with the Reich. And of course, Bonhoeffer was martyred by that totalitarian regime. You have to get all of the institutions under the control of the state. And what that prayer was from Pastor Bowler was a uh, paean to big government. Our Lady of Big Government is what St. Francis Xavier should be renamed. Government is our God. 
this is actually the attitude of the Marxist. Uh, Metaxas was right to talk about Marxists, uh, Karl Marx specifically as a racist and completely uninterested in religion, persons of faith. They're also uninterested in persons of color. A good piece by Mike Gonzalez recounts this over at uh, City Journal, Manhattan Institute outlet, Go, refer, referencing the 1969 declaration, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. The domestic terrorists Bill Ayers, Bernadine Dorn, John Jacobs, other revolutionary leaders of the weather underground spoke of black people not so much as the reason for their push to destroy American society and institute world communism, but as a means to achieve their goals. Black Americans, these people don't care about you. And by the way, that includes the Marxist founders of the Black Lives Matter organization, the Patrice Colorses of the world. Remember what she said in 2015 interview? I think of a lot of things. The first thing I think is that we actually do have an ideological frame. Um, myself and Alicia in particular are trained organizers. Um, we uh, are trained Marxists. Um, we are uh, super... Uh, versed um, on sort of ideological theories. And I think that what we really try to do is build a movement that could be utilized by many, many black folk. Right. But but the, the race is just a means to the end. Black people means to the end because black people who aren't on board with the ideology will be subjugated just like white people, subjugated or worse, as we understand the history of totalitarianism. It is worth noting, Colors trained for a decade as a radical organizer in the Labor Community Strategy Center, established and run by Eric Mann, a former member of the Weather Underground. Mann, who served 18 months in prison for assault and battery, disturbing the peace, disturbing the peace, remains committed to overthrowing the American system and achieving world revolution through organizing. Bill Ayers dedicated one of his books to Sirhan Sirhan, the individual who assassinated Bobby Kennedy. These people who killed cops, blew up buildings, and then, of course, because of the nature of the university as a uh, breeding ground for this, as a uh, base camp for radicalization, that's where Mao was radicalized, they became academics. B- uh, Bill Ayers right now is a public sector pensioner after getting a sinecure at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Bernadine Dorn ran the Family Law Center at Northwestern University. Domestic terrorists are welcome on college campuses. But listen to Patrice College, one of the founders and organizers of Black Lives Matter. Listen to what she's saying understand her history and all all pastor Kenneth Bowler is doing in New York city is aiding and abetting these domestic terrorists. And you want to be a part of that under the name of your, your faith of all things. That's not Catholicism. That's not the catechism you heard from the altar, from that priest. That's Marxism from a man in cloth. Doesn't change what he's saying. This is Dan Proff. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Going from uh, one Marxist, the priest in New York, to another, the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Nanny P uh, is uh, not going to wear the jacket for... uh, the hypocrisy of getting her hair did in that salon in San Francisco. No, no, no. Instead, she's conjured up a salon conspiracy theory to cover her hypocrisy. 
And here's what uh, Nancy Pelosi said. This was a, uh, a setup. This was a sting intended to entrap her in violation of uh, San Francisco's strictures regarding mask wearing and salon usage. It was clearly a setup. I take responsibility for falling for a setup by a neighborhood salon that I've gone to for years. Well, I don't. I think that they owe, uh, that this salon owes me an apology for setting up. Wow. She's owed an apology. No, I just had my hair washed. I don't wear a mask when I'm washing my hair. Do you wear a mask when you're washing your hair? I always have a mask. I always have a mask. Uh, I mean, it's again, it's not the you need a ma- mask to get your hair washed, but it's the strictures. Uh, if she pleads ignorance, she's a resident of San Francisco. If she doesn't know, third in line to the presidency, lives in San Francisco. If she doesn't know what the rules are in San Francisco, you know, they vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, although not that much when it comes to salons to the extent that they're allowed to be open. Uh, then uh, can everybody else in San Francisco plead ignorance of the laws of defense, too? I mean, when I get my hair cut in Chicago, I have to wear a mask. I wouldn't choose to. I have to, including when, you know, the stylist washes my hair before she cuts it. So I, that's that sort of uh, defensiveness combined with conspiracy theory. That explains it away. She's the victim here. Boy, that is a tall order. Oh, and by the way, how about going after an ordinary American? I know when Trump does that, that's punching down and that is obscene and disgusting. And I don't particularly like it when he does, when he punches down like that. What about when Nancy Pelosi does it? It does it. She's a powerful person, too, isn't she? Salon owner that is being pilloried now by uh, all of the Jacobins uh, that uh, and sentimental barbarians in Nancy Pelosi's corner. Somebody that's already had to suffer six months, essentially no revenue with salons being closed and they're still closed. And now she's the bad guy. This conspiracy to to uh, ensnare Nancy Pelosi and expose her hypocrisy as if this is novel. Nancy Pelosi's hypocrisy. The salon owner, her name is Erica Kios, I believe that's the pronunciation. Uh, she went on with Tucker Carlson last evening. Tucker's been having a great week and a lot of good guests, timely too, uh, and uh, responded to this assertion that it was all a big setup. Nancy Pelosi claims on camera that you orchestrated a, quote, setup to entrap her into getting her hair blown out without a mask. Did you? <laughs> no, absolutely not. How would you have done that? I mean, can you prove that this wasn't a diabolical setup designed to bring down the Speaker of the House by blow drying her hair? I, she had called <laughs> the stylist and had, or her assistant did and made the appointment. So yes. the appointment was already booked. So there's no way I could have set that up. And I've had a camera system in there for five years. I mean, I didn't go in there and turn cameras on as soon as she walked in to set her up. So that's absolutely false. And continuing. But she says she understood that the restrictions allowed a one-on-one appointment in salons. What do you make of that? I heard that, and I thought to myself, well, as a hairstylist, I see clients one-on-one. So that would mean I would be open, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Pardon, start, sorry to laugh. Yes, that it would mean sorry, that. Yes. Are, you, are you open? No. Uh, and uh, in terms of the uh, the impact of this controversy, well, the impact first of the, the shutdown on her business. What is that doing to you in your business? <sighs> um, for the past six months, we've 
I mean, we're pretty much done. Mm. I mean, we've lost um, at least 60% of our clients. Um, I've lost the majority of my staff. Um, so, you know, six months is a long time to be closed down. I'd say, especially for a retail business like a salon, um, that that landscape is going to be changed along with other service sector businesses in big cities like San Francisco. And um, uh, the uh, heat that she's taking, the salon owner, now that Nancy Pelosi has suggested uh, she was the uh, mastermind behind an evil plot to take her down, as Tucker Carlson was saying sarcastically. How do you feel about seeing the most powerful woman in America come into your salon in violation of the rules she supports, get caught and then blame you for it? To be honest, it was more hurtful. Um, She's been coming in for quite a while. And just to see her come in and especially not wearing the mask, that's what really got to me. But, you know, this isn't even political. I mean, she's been coming in there. It's the fact that she actually came in and didn't have a mask on. And I just thought about, you know, my staff and people not being able to work and make money and provide for their families. And if she's in there comfortably without a mask and feeling safe, then why are we shut down? Why am I not able to have clients come in? So well, it's, is- been, it's been hard. Those sorts of commonsensical questions have no place in America today, of course, especially as it pertains to leftist politicians and their media. What are you going to do? Are you going to stay in the city, do you think, in San Francisco? Um, I don't think so. I, um, the hard part of all this is that I have been in that community for 12 years. And since this happened, I have received um, nothing but hate, uh, text messages, death threats. Um, they're going to burn my hair salon down. My Yelp page is just unbelievable um, with bad reviews. Um, it's just, um, it's sad that my community um, is pulling this when they're saying that I threw her under the bus when I, I didn't. Um, so that's hurtful. But I think, yeah, I think I'm pretty much done there. Behold the tolerance of the left. Uh, that community that she served, maybe not the community she thought it was, huh? How many times have we seen that play out? Burn it down. Of course, that's our solution to anything, even criticism. That's our solution to avoid responsibility, avoid uh, having to uh, embrace the idea of agency, as we'll talk about with Ian Rowe coming up. Oh, and then the, the leftist press running interference. Dylan Byers, NBC News, tweeted out, America is beset by internal problems and external threats. We face severe political and cultural tensions, a global pandemic and threats from foreign adversaries. But I, for one, believe there is no issue so pressing today as a legislator's visit to a San Francisco hair salon. Isn't that cute? You see what he did there? He's being facetious. Isn't he clever? The only problem is, Dylan, number one, uh, Nancy Pelosi has made it now an extended story because of her attempt to scapegoat the salon owner. She's extended the story, hasn't she? Number two, is that the same posture NBC News and uh, other D.C. press corps outlets took with, res- with uh, respect to Mike Pence not wearing a mask at some site visit, Donald Trump not wearing a mask from time to time, the uh, hue and cry over the lack of social distancing 
at uh, Trump's uh, acceptance speech at the RNC last week? No, of course. Those are national stories. Nancy Pelosi not wearing a mask. No, no big deal. And those who are making it a big deal are silly people. Okay, Bill. You can go your own way. Podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Frederick Hess is a, um, a great scholar when it comes to K 12 education. He's at the American Enterprise Institute writing about uh, the quote unquote anti racism. Orthodoxy that is attendant to K through 12 education becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, again, uh, between ethnic studies as part of the curriculum in California schools and anti-racism as uh, the culture in uh, government schools, I-, I don't know if I'd be in such a rush to see K through 12 schools reopen. Not if I was sending my children there and had no other option. Uh, Frederick Kress writing about it writing about the flim-flam that it is, and we've talked about this extensively, and some of the uh, theoreticians who are behind it, like Ibram Kendi. Uh, but it, it's it's tragic when it pollutes otherwise good schools and school systems. Recall the KIPP charter schools, a celebrated charter school system in New York, changed their slogan, work hard, be nice. That's controversial. Work hard and be nice, controversial. They changed it in order to dismantle systemic racism. Working hard and being nice apparently have some sort of racial overtone, do they? The superintendent of New York's East Harlem Scholars Academies, in an essay in Education Week, instructed white teachers to steer away from talking about the individual accomplishments of black Americans because doing so would, quote, unintentionally teach students that really good, really successful black folks are exempt from racist structures. We don't want to point out success stories. I thought the mantra was, if you can see it, you can be it. But now if if you see it, you don't want to be it. Uh, Understand just and Frederick has gives a nice summary of of the inanity of it all. How to be an anti-racist in Ibram Kendi's book. There's one correct stance on everything. Everything is a binary. It's either racist or not racist. And so standardized testing, racist. Pot legalization, anti-racist. Medicare for all, anti-racist. Capital gains tax rate, uh, if you want to cut it, racist. Everything is forced through a prism of race with a binary choice, racist or anti-racist. And for, of course, white people, or those who apparently associate with us, I think, uh, you have to spend your life in uh, counseling sessions at at a particularly uh, hefty uh, price point, by the way, which corporate America is happy to pay as extortion money, uh, or uh, apologizing, or some combination of the two. Well, uh, in contrast to what's being offered by the Ibram Kendis and so many government school systems, uh, our friend Ian Rowe uh, uh, joins us now. Uh, to talk about this other report from the American Enterprise Institute, which if the goal is to achieve upward mobility, which I I thought was the goal to uh, put kids on a path to independence in their lives so they can choose their own course and be successful on their own terms. I I thought that was the idea. 
the new American uh, Enterprise Institute report, incentivize individual agency to achieve upward mobility. That's the way to do it. What a novelty. Ian Rowe, resident fellow at AEI, CEO of Public Prep, also in New York City. Ian, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. I know you're a, a sunshine and, and happiness kind of guy. You like to um, walk on the sunny side of the street and be optimistic and positive, and that's that's great, and that's good. But I, I, I did want to get your comment, though, on what your colleague uh, uh, Rick Hess penned, as well as just what's happening in K-12 through education, even in innovative K-12 through education systems like uh, some of the uh, charter school systems I mentioned. No, Dan, you're you're raising a very, very good point. I mean, the charter schools, uh, to some degree, the reason they were created in the first place was to be a bulwark uh, against this idea of, of fatalism, particularly for low-income uh, kids of color, that there was nothing that you could do to, to you know, in, improve your own station in life. And for decades, that's what charter schools, many of them, not all, not all charter schools are great, but many of them are great, and have actually proven the premise that with incredibly focused, uh, high expectations, strong academic programs, strong school leadership, kids of any color, kids of any background, uh, regardless of economics, could succeed at the highest levels. So it is very distressing to see kind of a a reversal uh, of those. And I think this sort of pressure to virtue virtue signal in some way uh, that somehow you know, the, the legacies have been racist, and, and, and in my view, it's been exactly the opposite. So I'm trying to work with many of our colleagues to, to use this time to actually stand up uh, for the principles that charter schools have, were created uh, in the first place. When we, come back with, uh, public pre- when we come back with public prep charter school CEO Ian Rowe, we're going to talk about individual agency as the pathway to independence and success. More with Ian Rowe right after this. The Dan Proft Show. We're back with American Enterprise Institute scholar and charter school CEO Ian Rowe. And um, back to the report out of the American Enterprise Institute. One comparison in particular I think is really important because it speaks to the heart of the political agenda of the Marxists is comparing and contrasting the success of different family structures in terms of household income and thus independence. Yeah, so, you know, the fundamental premise of the American dream is that regardless of the economic situation in which you're born, that doesn't have to define what you ultimately turn out to be. And there is a real issue. I mean, people have talked about the gap between black and white Americans in terms of the racial wealth gap, and there is a gap. If you look solely based on race, the average uh, African-American family has one-tenth the worth of the average white family. What's interesting is when you put into factors, specifically family structure, that relationship is reversed. The average black American family that's married, two-parent household, has almost twice the wealth of the average white American single-parent household. And so what that suggests is maybe there are factors outside of race 
that are within the control of young people to determine what their economic position is. And it's very important to relate this message because the dominant narrative right now is that if we are to close the racial wealth gap, a number of leading scholars are saying essentially that there's nothing that an individual black American can do to close the racial wealth gap. So, for example, Nicole Hannah-Jones, a writer at the New York Times, wrote a long piece justifying trillions of dollars in reparations to black, to black descendants of slaves by saying, quote, none of the actions we are told black people must take if they want to lift themselves out of poverty and gain financial stability, not marrying, not getting it, not getting educated, not saving more, not owning a home, can mitigate 400 years of racialized plundering, end quote. I mean, just think about that for a second. So you're saying, even if I got married, even if I got my education, even if I saved, even if I bought a home, none of that will improve my position, or, or if many of us did this, collectively improve the economic position of black people. It's an inherently defeatist message. And as someone who has run schools for the past decade, I know how debilitating these narratives can be if you feel that your effort is useless towards improving your own economic situation. The, the remarkable thing is these truisms, which we have known for generations, are um, being not just ignored, being actively eliminated. I mean, I just go back to that East Harlem Scholars Academy superintendent, don't elevate examples of black success don't elevate uh, black Americans who've been successful in whatever endeavor because it just feeds the notion that uh, some people are insulated from racism. That is a remarkable position to take. Also, in addition to the, 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 what you talked about, the soft bigotry of low expectations, the learned helplessness, and Oprah, of all people, promoting that. So that's a white supremacist position. There's also the arrogance of Oprah. Oh, oh, so this is the system, but you're better than me? You were able to do what you were able to do because you're better than me? I can't do what you did? There's an arrogance to people preaching from positions of uh, celebrity and status and wealth saying, this is the system, I was able to make it because I'm special, but you're not and you can't. I mean, Oprah Winfrey, again, is a shining example of the power of free enterprise, determination, agency, entrepreneurship. These are all incredible characteristics that we want to cultivate in all kids, and especially in black kids. It's not that racism doesn't exist. I think one of the uh, issues here is that folks think that in order to have an anti-racist position or the critics are that, well, these folks are saying racism doesn't exist. No, actually, we're saying that discrimination along racial lines, class lines, gender lines does still exist. The question is, is it so debilitating that you are just reduced to a helpless victim that has no power to take control over your life. Also, how should it be addressed? Should it be addressed by state bureaucrats picking and choosing how many people get to do this and how many people get to do that based on some non-behavioral characteristic? How do you want to address the inequities that do exist? What's the, oh, yeah. what's the most moral yeah. and effective way to do it? That's the other conversation. Exactly. What are the strategies? And then let, you know, let's have a real debate about that. In the paper, I cite three strategies. One is this concept of earned success, the notion that money generated through hard work is much more rewarding than money that's simply given to you, right? So how can schools become better equipped to encourage young people to go out and start their own businesses? The idea of wealth generation. How do you access venture capital? 
how do you stimulate entrepreneurship, particularly within low-income communities? If you study almost any group that had been persecuted, part of their strategy on their pathway to prosperity were high levels of launching their own businesses. So how many young people know about, for example, Harlem Capital Partners, a new firm in Harlem that is looking to invest in 1,000 minority and female founders over the next 20 years? Or a recent entrepreneur, a black entrepreneur that just created a $100 million fund to invest in female entrepreneurs. I mean, these, these are the ideas that are about agency, that go out and get it. These resources exist for you. You know, should we be teaching the success sequence uh, in schools? Uh, you know, what I just said, not as a prescriptive that you must follow this pathway, but most kids need to know that there are decisions within your control that result in more than 90% of the time avoiding poverty. Shouldn't we teach that as one pathway along with others that young people can know about, and then they decide. And, and, one, and one thing that's interesting, there was a, a recent survey, nationwide survey just done, about this topic of should we teach these kinds of things in schools. 72% of parents said they would very much support explicitly teaching the, the pathway of the success sequence in school. So it's very interesting when you actually speak of the, the, the people who others claim to be advocating for, when you bypass those gatekeepers and talk to the actual folk, their positions on these things are very, very different. They want their kids to achieve the American dream, and they want to understand how is it that millions and millions and millions of others have done the exact same thing that they aspire to do for their children. He is Ian Rowe, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and CEO of Public Prep in New York City. Ian, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Got a black magic woman Got a black magic woman I've got a black magic woman Got me so blind I can see That she's a black magic woman She's trying to make the devil out of me You're listening to The Dan Proft Show On the Salem Radio Network Welcome back to the show, and just uh, building off of uh, our conversation with Ian Rowe from uh, Public Prep Charter Schools in, in New York City about agency and about success. Good piece by Jason Whitlock on the occasion of the passing of former Georgetown basketball coach John Thompson. By the way, just in the sports world, too, the passing of terrific Tom, Tom Seaver at the age of 75. Sad. It was sad when he got diagnosed with Louis Body, and uh, his passing is sad. His passing of John Thompson is sad. He was not necessarily my cup of tea, especially because I was a huge North Carolina fan, you know, Michael Jordan, uh, and uh, and a Dean Smith fan as well. But you can't deny the success that John Thompson had and how he turned the Georgetown program around. I mean, more than just turned it around, it sort of created it out of whole cloth into a basketball powerhouse. And that's uh, Whitlock's point, writing at Outkick.com, quickly becoming my favorite sports writer, Jason Whitlock. Uh, what he accomplished at tiny Georgetown University changed college basketball for a generation. Whitlock uh, notes Thompson took over a 3-23 and Georgetown squad in 1972. Two years later, they qualified for the tourney. Four years after that, Thompson 
and the Hoyas join the brand new Big East Conference and advance to the NCAA's Elite Eight. To go from 3-23 and 23 to the Elite Eight in four years, uh, six years, I should say, uh, pretty impressive. And uh, that run in 1980 caught the attention of one Patrick Ewing, who was a high school junior and uh, the greatest prep pos- prospect since uh, Lou Cinder slash Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, and uh, it was uh, Thompson who, who was able to outmaneuver Dean Smith in recruiting Patrick Ewing to go to Georgetown. Now, of, of course, that changed the trajectory of that program for a couple of generations. Whitlock writing, together, uh, Thompson and Ewing birthed Hoya Paranoia, competed in three of the next four NCAA title games, won a championship, and made Lily White Georgetown feel like America's favorite historically black college. It's, it's true. But here's the... The real impact, too. I mean, that's a real impact, but here's another real impact that's less connected to Thompson than it deserves to be. Arkansas hired Nolan Richardson in 1985. Temple grabbed John Chaney in 1982. Minnesota hired Clem Haskins in 1986. Nolan Richardson led the Razorbacks to a national title in 94. Remember, uh, 40 Minutes of Hell? That was a great team. Becoming the second black coach after Thompson to win it all. Chaney's Owls, Temple Owls, advanced to the Elite Eight uh, five times. Haskins, Gophers, made it all the way to the Final Four. Thompson, Richardson, Cheney, and Haskins built sustainable programs. Their success in the 80s and 90s made college basketball the envy of sports leagues looking for diversity and leadership. At various points in the 2000s, actually, the ACC, the SEC, and the Big East had more blackhead coaches than whitehead coaches. That's the legacy of John Thompson. It's no different than the legacy of Oprah Winfrey, her talk show success creating opportunities for Wendy Williams, Whoopi Goldberg, Star Jones, Robin Roberts, Sherry Shepard, Gail King, and so many more. He took a job no one wanted at a school no one dreamed you could build a national powerhouse, and he did it. Hmm. And uh, the takeaway? Winning advances the cause of black people more than whining. That's Jason Whitlock. And that is the legacy of John Thompson. Whether you liked him or you like Georgetown or not, uh, Jason Whitlock has the history right and the chronology right. And the takeaway, right? This is Dan Prost. This is the Dan Prof Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com on social media at Dan Prof Show or at Dan Prof. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Wall Street Journal pointing out uh, something nobody wants to particularly consider at this juncture, either party, that um, the pandemic bill, I'm not talking about legislation, I'm talking about the actual cost, will soon be such that uh, the debt held by the federal government will reach 100% of GDP. In point of fact, we will be in a position with the highest debt to GDP ratio in American history. There's a, at some point, there's a reckoning, as it said, and perhaps um, when the government will soon owe more than the American economy produces in a year, that reckoning is not long off, may come in the form of inflation. And this is um, a point that's made in a real clear politics op-ed from a 26-year-old freelance writer named uh, Jason Garshfield. It's young Americans who will be left paying for the $2 trillion CARES Act over the coming decades. It's young Americans graduating into the second catastrophic financial crisis in a dozen years and who will likely do worse for the rest of their lives as a result. It's young Americans, both in K-12 and in universities, being denied the full benefits of an in-person learning experience. It's also young Americans missing out on the full enjoyment of their youth. 
he and he points out what we've discussed before, CDC study finding that a quarter of young adults 18 to 24 have contemplated suicide in the past month. He argues young people should be organizing against covid lockdowns. Uh, Young people should be standing up for themselves and their futures, even if their parents and grandparents, many of them will not. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Wesley Smith. Wesley Smith is author and a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. Wesley, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan, and hello to your listeners. Uh, it's, uh, frankly, uh, nice to hear a little frustration in the direction of liberty from uh, a, a young person like uh, Mr. Marshfield writing that op-ed and saying things that are undeniably true, whether you think the policy solution should be uh, perhaps as debatable, but in terms of the impact, it's not debatable. Well, it strikes me that way. I've been really quite appalled as I've watched uh, children being kept out of school, even though children uh, have a very, very tiny uh, chance of of becoming seriously ill from the COVID. I I was thinking back to my youth and I was thinking, what would it have been like if I could not actually have gone to school, played in the playground, been with the teachers, interacted with my fellow students? I think that my education, I'm not an education expert, but my education would have been stunted. My development would have been stunted. And what has really infuriated me is to watch these teachers unions. They're not a group that I tend to pay much attention to, but when they scream they're going to go on strike and they're not going to teach students unless certain social justice issues uh, go their way that have nothing to do with COVID, I begin to wonder whose side they're on. Well, and also, too, I mean, the context that you were sort of getting to is, look, uh, for uh, people under the age of 18 years old, it's about the, the dying from COVID is about the same likelihood as dying from getting hit by lightning. So, I mean, it's just uh, it, the the cost versus the benefit is just so exactly. out of proportion. It's not really it's just not sensible, but it does. You know, I guess you don't have to make sense if you induce enough fear and you have adults beset by fear, too, that are in charge of the institutions that these young people are trying to access. Yeah. And you don't in other countries, you're not seeing people being held back from school, children being held back from school. There has been I have never seen in this country such a state of panic uh, over something that is very difficult. It's very serious. But in the in the United States of old, you soldier on, you know, you keep moving forward. And there are people in this country who want us to come to a dead stop. Let me give you one example. Ezekiel Emanuel. Ezekiel Emanuel uh, was one of the prime architects of Obamacare. He's probably the most influential bioethicist in the country. He's now a prime healthcare advisor for the Biden campaign. When this first broke, he wanted the country completely shut down for 18 months. Right. Yes. And he said, we, can, we cannot open until there's a vaccine. And now he wants the country shut down for another six months which would, of course, decimate the uh, beginnings of uh, the rebuilding of the economy that we're seeing now. Well, and, and again, the shutdowns, uh, we only look at them. We're so dishonest. Some of us are so dishonest about the way we look at them. We only look at them in one direction, COVID infections. You can die from any yeah. other cause other than COVID, and it's perfectly acceptable. We can even induce death from other causes like deaths of despair, uh, and that's acceptable. So long as it's not COVID, that's fine. You know, it was interesting before we got on the air together, I was looking at a story and it says that uh, new cancer diagnoses are way down. They've plummeted. Well, Dan, I have to tell you, that's not because cancer has gone away. It's because of this incredible panic that people who would have had their cancer caught early are not having it diagnosed. And down the line, that's going to lead to more suffering and more death. 
I, I find it um, rather ironic to the uh, proponents of these lockdown measures and the invocation of the preservation of life. Um, you've written extensively about the so-called death with dignity movement and the same people that are proposing lockdowns because they're great vanguards of human life, even at end stage, are the one, <laughs> are, are the ones who are otherwise promoting, prom- promoting mercy killing all over the place, going from end life to uh, anybody who has a limp in there, uh, a hitch in their giddy up, <laughs> a little bit of a limp when they're young. Well, uh, it's, it's a, that's a slight exaggeration, but not that much. When you when you take a look at the uh, assisted suicide euthanasia movement, once a, a society accepts the premise that killing is an acceptable answer to human suffering, the killable caste, if you will, C-A-S-T-E, expands exponentially to the point where in places such as the Netherlands and, and uh, Belgium, where the people widely accept the idea that if things get tough, you should be killed, they're even uh, euthanizing the mentally ill and then harvesting their organs. You can see where this kind of stuff can lead. This COVID thing has, on one hand, it's interesting, held back the assisted suicide movement because efforts to legalize were put on hold as legislators or legislatures went out of session. On the other hand, you can just see there's stories all the time of how this becomes important in the age of COVID. So that rather than fighting for your life, if you come down with the infection, if somebody's too panicked about potential future suffering, maybe they'll put themselves out of their COVID misery. Yeah, right. I wanted to get to something else that you wrote over at National Review. Um, you know, the expert class is uh, suffering a, uh, a loss of legitimacy again uh, in many yeah. quarters, at least. And, <laughs> and you hit on something that I, I, I like. I hadn't quite caught it the way that you did. But the difference between uh, public health imperatives and medical imperatives when we're making uh, judgments about uh, things like uh, prote- uh, about the mask wearing and social distancing and protests, for example. Exactly. I, I caught this. Uh, there's a, there was an uh, article published by the Hastings Center Report. Uh, for, for listeners who may not know, the Hastings Center is probably the most prestigious and important bioethics journal uh, in the world. And the bioethics movement, as I call it, uh, tends to be very liberal unless uh, a bioethicist has a modifier in front of his or her name, such as Catholic or pro-life. They're going to be a very they're going to be moving towards a utilitarian ish. A very liberal political approach to these kinds of issues. And uh, th- this article was defending the uh, mass protests for the BLM issue and uh, contrasting that with the much smaller protests that uh, were, we saw early on against the lockdown, most, for example, the one in Michigan. Uh, and they were saying that the, um, they wrote that the, the BLM protests were perfectly, perfectly okay even though we're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> but the, the anti-lockdown protests weren't because the uh, BLM protests were to promote uh, the idea of, uh, of, of uh, public health imperatives, meaning, you know, fighting racism. But the, uh, they then judged the Michigan and the anti-lockdown protests by a, a medical standard, a medical recommendations. Now, medical recommendations is an objective standard. It's, it, if you're going to have something based on science, that's what it is. Public health imperatives is politics. What these bioethicists and many in the medical establishment think are the most important political and ideological approaches, partially to improve public health, but also based on their political views. And so they judge the BLM much larger, mass protests, people having a much greater chance of catching COVID there as okay 
but not the, the anti-lockdown uh, protest, because, see, that wasn't a good issue to protest. Right. Dan. Yes. And since we don't like that issue to protest, because you're going against what these people are saying, you're going against their recommendations. So that's wrong. So the hypocrisy just drips. And then what happens when people see this, and the, the Nancy Pelosi thing with the beauty shop is another example, is the hypocrisy destroys trust and shatters institutions. And so pretty soon we don't have anybody that we can look to and say, gee, who do we follow? Who, who's going to lead us? Because there's just so much corruption out there uh, in the intellectual and in the ruling class uh, as, as, we, as we observe it. Yes, and the, the, the honest answer is that uh, advancing Marxism is a public health imperative for so many of these individuals. Yeah, exactly. He is Wesley Smith. He's the author. He's a, a author and senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. Wesley Smith, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Would you rescue me? Would you give my back? Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Switching from COVID to counting votes. Attorney General Barr, uh, back in D.C. after his uh, visit to Kenosha with President Trump the other day, took the occasion to uh, go in studio with Wolf Blitzer to talk about uh, mail-in voting. And it was a spirited exchange uh, about the the most exercise you're going to hear Bill Barr uh, as he uh, spoke passionately about uh, the understanding about promoting mail-in voting the way it's being promoted now, which is not absentee ballot voting where you request a ballot to a specific address, but this pushing out ballots indiscriminately and the potential for fraud that is attendant to it bar making the case uh, over Wolf Blitzer's interruptions. Listen. James Baker said back in 2009 that mail-in voting is fraught with the risk of fraud and coercion. And and until this administration has proved it. Let me talk. Yeah, please. Uh, And since this since that time, there have been in the newspapers, in networks, academic studies saying it is open to fraud and coercion. The only time the narrative changed is after this administration came in. But elections that have been held with mail have found substantial fraud and coercion. For example, we indicted someone in Texas, 1,700 ballots collected he may, from people who ha- could vote. He made them out and voted for the person he wanted to. Okay? Because that I'll, kind of thing happens with mail-in ballots, are, and everyone knows But that. there are individual uh, cases, but as far as widespread fraud... We haven't seen that since. Uh, well, we have. We haven't had the kind of widespread use of mail-in ballots that's being proposed. We've had absentee ballots from people who request them from a specific address. Now, what we're talking about is mailing them to everyone on the voter list when everyone knows those voter lists are inaccurate. People who should get them don't get them, which was what has been one of the major complaints in states that have tried this in, in municipal elections. And people who get them are not the right people. They're people who have replaced the the previous occupant, and they can make them out. And sometimes multiple ballots come to the same address with a whole generation, several generations of occupants. Do you think that's a way to run a vote? No, it's not a way to run a vote. And we know this is happening. We get uh, communications from voters all the time. Right now, in this show, I do, 
that this is happening. Pictures as well of all the ballots they've received for all the individuals that don't live in their household. He's exactly right, of course. Something else, though. Wolf Blitzer's contention (laughs) is just a remarkable statement. Sure, there have been instances of voter fraud, but nothing widespread. How widespread does it need to be, Wolf? How, How widespread would it have needed to be in Florida in 2000? How widespread would it have needed to be in Wisconsin in 2016? Widespread. What does that mean? What's the threshold? What's the acceptable threshold of voter fraud for Wolf Blitzer? That would be the question I would have asked. And by the way, one instance of voter fraud for one vote disenfranchises somebody. So is it okay if you get disenfranchised that your vote isn't counted? It's nullified. So if it's not okay for your vote to be nullified improperly, why is it okay for somebody else's? Why are we supposed to just dismiss that as isolated incidents? Oh, by the way, in addition to what Attorney General Barr said, again, as we've discussed in some detail on this show, more so than most, real world examples of Patterson, New Jersey, where they're doing a redo for their municipal elections because of the percentage of spoiled ballots, mail-in ballots that were spoiled. And the contentiousness, Democrats and Democrats, Patterson, New Jersey, third most populous city in New Jersey for city posts. The NAACP, they're calling for a redo of the election. And uh, this doesn't contemplate New York State, which had their election afterwards. Same issues. Carolyn Maloney's primary for that congressional seat still in dispute. Uh, Go to the Heritage Foundation's voter fraud database for the instances of people who have actually been caught. I mean, we talk about this in jurisdictions like Cook County in Chicago. The the flipping of the 1960 election based on Mayor Daley and the Democrat machine here, arguably, in addition to what LBJ did in Texas. That's supposed to be something we laugh about. Oh, they really pulled one over. Or do you want elections to be seen as legitimate by the populace? If they're not seen as legitimate, then in these polarized times, what are we doing? Bill Barr, Bill Barr addressed that. Well, this is playing with fire. This is playing with fire. We're a very closely divided country here. And if people have to have confidence in the results of the election and the legitimacy of the government and people trying to change the rules to this to this methodology, which, as a matter of logic, is very open to fraud and coercion, is reckless and dangerous. And the people are playing with fire. They're playing with fire. Carl Rove had a good piece in The Wall Street Journal about this as well. It's not a post office issue. And, you know, it's not a post office issue because that's what the Democrats are obsessing over. Uh, Actually, the uh, efficiency of the post office has improved significantly under Louis DeJoy. But setting that aside, he makes a couple of points that are important. One, you're talking about uh, a handful of battleground states where this is going to be material, even though no voter fraud should be or potential for it should just be dismissed as it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. But in terms of impacting the outcome, could come down to a few battleground states and just a few jurisdictions within those battleground states. Well, look what happened in 2000 in just a couple of jurisdictions in one battleground state. It doesn't take that much to Wolf Blitzer's wholesale argument of voter fraud in order for us to pay attention to it. Additionally, uh, Rove makes the point mail-in ballots are rejected at a not insignificant rate, as I mentioned the Patterson, New Jersey case, especially those filed by first-time mail-in voters who didn't follow instructions properly. Imagine the scrutiny those will receive in a close contest and the litigation that will ensue. In addition to pointing out, uh, Rove does, the uh, various state laws in terms of when uh, mail-in ballots must be postmarked and when they may be received. It's, you know, it's tiered. So you could, uh, as we talked about a bit yesterday, the red mirage or maybe a blue mirage. Who knows? More likely red, I suppose. But regardless, you could have declarations that are reversed a week, 10 days, two weeks later, and certainly litigation in particular jurisdictions within states or states in general. And then, of course, uh, Wolf Blitzer has to get in 
the first refuge of the scoundrel when it comes to in-person voting. Didn't bother Governor Pritzker in Illinois to holding a primary in March at the the ascent of the outbreak because elections are important to legitimize the people in power. But uh, now, not so much because people could die, of course. If they waited long lines uh, when they go to the polls, uh, they could get they could get sick, especially older people or people with underlying conditions. As a result, a lot of people want to change the rules so they don't have to go wait right. long people, lines. Well, they don't have to touch all this. And the appropriate way to deal with that is, number one, arrangements at the polls that protect people, which. Well, in addition to that, look, um, what do we know about the transmission of the virus? I mean, we're still having to endure the uh, shibboleth from Wolf Blitzer that uh, the virus is transmitted on surfaces. That was a belief early on that was debunked by the science. What happened to Wolf Blitzer, man of science? It's just scare tactics. In addition to long lines, early votes, you've got six weeks in some states or legitimately request an absentee ballot from your address. That's so onerous. Specious is really the uh, proper adjective for Wolf Blitzer's concerns. And uh, you can't mention Wolf Blitzer without uh, mentioning the girl that was raised by Wolf Blitzer. Thank you, uh, Jim Haggerty, Tracy Gill. Um, I really appreciate the chance to uh, talk about my rather unique upbringing. Now, Molly, you've been through so much. Are you doing okay? Well, no question, Jim. It certainly is going to be difficult for me to re-enter society, so I uh, am really looking forward to getting your perspective on the matter. Tracy Gill, co-host of Today Now, what's your take? Um, well, I have to admit, it's a little hard to understand her. Yeah. Yes, the only way she knows how to communicate is through Wolf Blitzer's colorless monotone. To me, always listing synonyms to words at the end of my sentences was just typical. Normal, par for the course. We are... She's uh, the, the girl they got, Onion TV, the girl they got to do this Wolf Blitzer, raised by Wolf Blitzer thing, was so great. So smart. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, pulling out from our discussion of electoral politics uh, per Attorney General's bar, Attorney General Barr's exchange with Wolf Blitzer about mail-in voting. Uh, pull back a little bit and an assessment of conservatism. Uh, we've had this conversation with Michael Anton from uh, Claremont Institute and Hillsdale College uh, per his new book, uh, The Stakes. And uh, the discussion that uh, as to what the Republican Party would become as well as what it should become, what it would become if Trump is not victorious, what it should become regardless, which is more Trumpian in Anton's uh, line of thinking. And um, I don't know, it t- may turn out that Hillsdale College uh, turns out to be uh, to sort of conservatism and conservative philosophy with the University of Chicago back in the days of uh, Milton and Friedman and Gary Becker was to economic thought. Uh, Our friend Hillsdale College professor David Azerod writes in the American Conservative, 
What is conservatism in America today? It's hundreds of millions of dollars a year spent fiddling while Rome burns. It's ideas with little to no consequences. It's getting trampled over by history, but while yelling stop to uh, invoke the sainted William F. Buckley. Uh, He goes on. Worst of all, conservatism is cowardice and accommodation in the face of leftist hegemony. And that's something um, that I think is a particularly fair indictment and something that has changed the attitude uh, because of the attitude of President Trump, even if it's not always manifested in the most effective way, that we will fight. And there's a lot of people that take at least that attitude, even if they want to do so more more judiciously and more effectively sometimes, that we are not just going to be pincushions. We will fight back for the things that are important to us, starting with um, the God-given rights that are enshrined in our Constitution and our enjoyment of said rights. For more on the future of American conservatism, uh, will we be uh, relegated to the ash heap of history because of the Nero's in charge? We're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid David Azarod, Assistant Professor and Research Fellow at Hillsdale College's Van Andel Graduate School of Government in D.C. David, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me back on. Uh, I like the... um, I like the piece, um, and I also like this sort of the first question, too, as I was reading it, the the idea of uh, at this point, particularly if uh, we give the rest of the institutional control of Western civilization over to the left with a Trump defeat in November, that uh, maybe the Benedict option is the best option, sort of the, the more thoughtful going of Galt, uh, to borrow from Ayn Rand. Uh, the Benedict option um, uh, made somewhat uh, popular by Rod Dreher in his book on the topic of uh, Christians and people of conscience uh, just focusing on living under a different sort of America, living their values under a different sort of America by doing so locally. Yeah, the problem is that that would presuppose that the ruling class uh, is tolerant and will allow people to opt out of the mainstream culture, will allow people in Alabama to homeschool their kids, will allow people in flyover country to go to their churches and worship God if they see fit. And the truth of the matter is they're not, because theirs is a totalitarian ideology. They're deeply intolerant. This is not the live and let live ethos of the 60s. Um, You know, someone once wrote in National Review that, the left has won the culture wars and they're now roaming the countryside shooting survivors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, yeah. you can't do a Benedict option under such a framework. You know, one to me, the, the best example is the left's reaction to Obergefell. So they have this spectacular, pretty rapid victory on gay marriage and they barely pause to do a victory lap. The next day they go on the offense and start going after the bakers, the florists and the photographers who don't want to be involved in a gay marriage. They'll hire gays, they'll serve them otherwise. They just, because of their conscience, don't want to bake a cake. And they start getting sued. Some of them go out of business. And you think, you can't leave these people alone. You can't go find another baker. That's it, you've won. Let these people live out their lives. They won't. So the Benedict option, regrettably, uh, is not an option. Uh, You write in the piece that... um, uh the conservative project in America today is fundamentally a counter-revolutionary one. 
And I want to pick it up there when we return with David Azerod, Assistant Professor and Research Fellow at Hillsdale College's Van Andel Graduate School of Government in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with David Azerod from Hillsdale College about uh, his piece, American Conservatism is Fiddling While Rome Burns, at TheAmericanConservative.com. As I uh, said at the outset of our conversation, you uh, point up something that I'm in complete agreement with, which is conservatism's uh, worst feature, at least pre-Trump, is the cowardice and accommodation in the face of leftist hegemony. And that continues across institutions, even with Trump there, uh, certainly the more establishmentarian element of the Republican Party is still more than happy to bend the knee so long as they keep their sinecures. And I wonder, I I put the same question to Michael Anton, if Trump loses and there's this fight for the shape the Republican Party takes after Trump, certainly the establishmentarians will try to reassert themselves and say Trump was an anomaly and uh, we need to go back to being the party of of Mitt Romney and John McCain, then it, it may lose relevance but by the same t- but by the time that it could potentially regain relevance or take some different form that was more willing to be combative it may be too late considering the amount of control that the left has and as you say their penchant for shooting any survivors of the culture wars i'm in full agreement with both of your points the first is should trump lose the reaction from the republican establishment from conservative elites is see we told you so it was 70,000 votes in three states It was rotten Hillary, and it was the vacancy on the Supreme Court. It was just a fluke. There's nothing to learn from this. Now back to regular scheduled programming, and Mm -hmm. have you met Nikki Haley? Yes, yes, right, exactly. That'll be the the reaction. Now, you're also right that I think that one is, I just don't think that that model is viable, not even in the long term, even in the short to medium term electorally, coupled with the fact that the next time the left takes power, they've already started doing that with their control of big tech, but is they're going to implement changes that will pretty much guarantee that their rule can't be fundamentally challenged, by which I would mean one will be amnesty and make Texas into California and make it impossible at the national level for the GOP to be competitive because they know that immigrants overwhelmingly vote for Democrats. Second will be transformations in the system of government, the Electoral College, maybe D.C. statehood, Puerto Rico statehood, packing the Supreme Court that will consolidate their power, get rid of the filibuster in the Senate. And then three, which we're already seeing, is big tech putting a stranglehold on the flow of information to make sure that the American people only hear what the elites want them to hear. And these three things, if fully implemented, will mean that maybe it's a failure of imagination on my behalf, but I fail to see how you can challenge a system that has been thus transformed. You uh, write that the the new right, the more combative right, if you will, and I mean that in a positive sense, the more willing to stand up and fight the fight over ideas and power, control. Uh, you write the new right understands it's not just about ideas, it's about power. And it, it's interesting because I, I hear this phrase all the time and I want to get your comment on it. When we talk about the assaults on institutions, the violence in the streets, 
we say, well, this is the left making a, a play for power. But the way it's phrased often is it's just a power grab. It's just a power grab. It's not just a power grab. It is a power grab. And that's not a, something you say just to. Right. It's a, a power grab for the purposes of turning the entire country into an Ivy League college campus. That is that is something that is consequential. It's not like something. Oh, it's just a power grab. No big deal. Yeah. And, and I, I am not calling for violence in the streets. I'm simply calling for when we are in power, why don't we wield our power on the right as effectively as the left does? By which I would mean, you know, there are limits to what I'm about to say. But broadly speaking, why don't we use our power to reward our friends and punish our enemies? Our enemies would mm. be, for example, higher ed. Well, why don't you defund them? Why don't you put more strings on the money? Why don't you reform accreditation? Yeah. Why don't you find alternative pathways to not feed everyone into the higher ed system, which is just seminaries for the left? And then why don't we reward our friends? So what is the base for the right? You know, it's, it's small businesses, people in smaller town, the working class. Why don't we think politically instead of, you know, this lofty, high-minded devotion to abstractions? And I'm not saying we shouldn't have principles. That's foolish. But when you're in politics, that's kind of what politics is, no? It's rewarding friends and punishing enemies. The left has mastered that. And for some reason, the right still seems to think that it's, it's beneath us to do that. Well, well, that means he, we don't know how to govern. Well, here, here's the thing. You know, I, I you know, this is something for um, uh, conservatives like me that's that's difficult because, you know, I live in a state called Illinois that uh, is a failed state because of the spoils of war political culture. And so this, the problem with the spoils of war political culture, of course, is that you the state never stops growing because once you're buying friends and punishing their enemies, you're necessarily no longer doing so out of a matter of principle, but a matter it's a transactional nature to build, you know, the infrastructure you need to stay in power. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but it's just hard for people to exercise restraint, as you know, when they when they yeah. uh, access power. Well, so, and so so I just I, you know, it's, I'm just concerned about that. Look, the reality is there's the, the, the talk during campaigns and then the rent seeking that Republicans play just as much as Democrats do, uh, maybe perhaps less effectively, as you're suggesting. But I, I it, but there is some real downside to adopting so that, their approach. That's a perfectly legitimate concern to which I respond. When I say harming the enemies, that's actually serving the common good. I mean, the, the whole justification right. for the C3 status for the universities, the subsidies, is that they serve the common good. They don't. Ditto, by the way, with the LLC status. I mean, a limited liability corporation doesn't spring out of nature. It's created by law. And the justification is that it'll serve the common good. So it is perfectly legitimate as a matter of principle to go after institutions that are undermining republicanism in America. Second, on the, on the rewarding friends, the Republican Party currently does it. It's just it doesn't understand who its friends are. It, think, it thinks that its friends are corporate America who want open borders. It thinks that its friends are the Chamber of Commerce. So one is the party's already doing it. They're just actually subsidizing the enemy. And second, there's a way of rewarding your friends that doesn't mean just sending them money. I, I would not want the federal government to be in the business of sending subsidies to small businesses. But you could just at the very least, rhetorically signal or understand who your base is. Mm -hmm. You know, what Trump did by showing up at the March for Life, by giving Rush Limbaugh the Congressional Medal of Freedom, by doing the flyover at NASCAR, that these are small things, but they send a powerful signal to the base that I actually care about you. And you'd, you'd think that something as basic as that any politician would have understood, and yet the Mitt Romney types view the base as, you know, the 47 percent who are not paying their taxes. Mm hmm. 
Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that's well stated. No, I, I think that's right on. I think that's right on. He is David Azarod, Assistant Professor and Research Fellow at Hillsdale College's Van Andel Graduate School of Government in D.C. David, thanks for joining us again. Good stuff. Appreciate it. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you, Dan. Take care. I'm Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the program, and uh, just following up on a conversation with David Azarod, who's always provocative, and the clarity of thought is, is so appreciated. Uh, here's an example of uh, what we were discussing in terms of where the Republican Party shouldn't go, regardless of outcome, whether Trump wins or Trump loses. Pr- much less likely to go in this direction if Trump wins than if he loses. But uh, it is a uh, dead end in either situation. The mask force, Senate Republicans producing this little video, PSA style of them wearing their masks and lecturing to lecturing you effectively about mask wearing uh, engaged in promoting the same sort of magical thinking that the lockdown left does when it comes to masks as some sort of panacea, some sort of force field. When, of course, the science tells us something very different. Listen to this. And this is you know, these are senators I like too, Tim Scott and uh, Todd Young from Indiana. But it's just pablum. It's pablum. They're they're peddling here. I wear my mask for my family and my community. I wear my mask for my Iowa State Cyclones. I wear my mask for fellow Marines. Mask up, Hoosiers. The one thing that each of us could do all across America to help protect ourselves and others is to wear a mask and practice social distancing. I wear a mask because I think Chuck Grassley has a responsibility as a public official to set an example, but at the same time, I'm protecting other people. I wear my mask for the grandkids I hope to one day have. I wear my mask for a lot of reasons. One reason is because I want to protect my family and the people that I love. Our state motto is to the stars through difficulty. But folks, you can't get there unless you wear a mask. Another reason why I wear my mask is because I want to protect my friends. I wear a mask to protect my family, my friends, my community, my state, and my country. A very important reason why I wear my mask is the return college football god bless you are you wearing your mask you can't get to the stars if you don't wear a mask seriously uh, we've talked about this with uh, medical doctors like kevin fam as well as public health professionals we've gone over the uh, research and analysis from academics like uh, university of ottawa physicist dennis rancourt and there's some disagreement there's no question about it but the uh, there's there's no substantive disagreement that masks these kitschy face diapers that these senators are wearing have any statistically significant protective capacity. They're not sanitized. They're not fitted. They're just, you know, an Iowa State Cyclone uh, uh, emblazoned surgical mask that then Joni Ernst put in her pocket or her purse, takes out again, in and out, in and out, and so forth. Look, this is the problem that Azarad was pointing out, that I pointed out before as well. The left advances a line of propaganda, amplified by the D.C. press corps, so it turns into received wisdom. And then rather than make an argument because I'm too lazy to do so or because I'm too afraid to do so, 
the Republicans just turn around and parrot the same agitprop. That's how you become a minority party, permanently. That's how your party disappears. And that's, I think, what David Azarod is saying. And I'm in full agreement. This is Dan Proff. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That's the website. You also find podcast there as you do on spotify and itunes twitter at dan Proft and at dan Proft show we're so uh, focused on the uh, potential for frauding with mail-in voting that uh maybe we haven't uh, paid as much attention to what big tech is up to as we should we certainly have talked about it uh, over the last couple of years really actually dating back to uh, this video that was unearthed by our next guest of the post-election post-mortem at uh, Google World Headquarters about uh, the world coming to an end because uh, Hillary Clinton lost the election. They couldn't fathom a world in which President Trump was the president because, of course, that would mean minorities would be under assault and so on and so forth. Right. That really hasn't come to pass, particularly those six and seven figure Google engineers. But okay, the man who obtained that tape in 2018 is Alan Bakari. He is a senior technology correspondent at Breitbart. And he's the author of the soon-to-be-released book, September 22nd, later this month, Deleted, Big Tech's Battle to Erase the Trump Movement and Steal the Election. Alan Bakari, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for the invite. Good to be on. Yes, um, and uh, good work in uh, unearthing that video. That uh, was really important in addition to other uh, information you have been able to call from Big Tech. And and I want to go to the second part of the title erase the Trump movement, steal the election, the steal the election part. This was a testimony that our colleague Dennis Prager offered last year before a Senate subcommittee that a noted Democrat, but also psychologist Robert Epstein offered in terms of how Google in particular, but Google working with Facebook and Twitter could really move as many as 20 million votes, according to Dr. Epstein's research, through the way that uh, search engines return results and through the censoring that's happening on Facebook and Twitter and the like. And, and I just wanted you to comment on some of that research and what you mean when you say the prospect of stealing the election. Well, certainly the search engine manipulation described by Dr. Epstein is going to be a major factor, I think, in swaying undecided voters. I think a lot of conservatives and Trump supporters believe they're not going to be manipulated by these tech companies. They know they're biased. No, that's true. But the big danger is to undecided voters, because when an undecided voter wants to learn more information about a candidate, you know, they may not follow politics every single day, they'll go to one of these platforms. What they'll see is a constant stream of propaganda against Donald Trump and in favor of Joe Biden. We know that uh, almost all conservative content now is shadow banned or suppressed. I did an article just the other day showing that when you search for uh, BLM is on Google, the suggested search results are almost all positive or neutral. It doesn't reflect what people are actually searching for, whether if you go to a competing search engine like DuckDuckGo, is BLM Marxist, is BLM peaceful? Uh, you know, people who are curious about the movement trying to find out, you know, have they done good things or bad things? You won't find that on Google. You won't get a balanced picture. And that's something we did in 2016 as well by deleting negative search suggestions about Hillary Clinton. 
I think they're just going to increase that this election. We've already seen them cut visit search visibility for Breitbart News, one of the top conservative websites out there, to zero on searches for Joe Biden and Biden. So if you're searching for information about the Democrat candidate, you are very unlikely to see any results criticizing him. In addition to that, Facebook has taken criticism, ironically, from the left for not being aggressive enough in banning conservative content or pro-Trump content, accepting political ads and the like. But give us your assessment of sort of Facebook's disposition and some of their conduct that could serve to try to move the election Biden's way. I mean, Zuckerberg, uh, even where there's a distinction between him and, and the conduct of Dorsey or the conduct of the folks at Google, I mean, he still is obviously a man of the left. Absolutely. I think what the key difference between Zuckerberg and the leadership of Google that we saw in that leaked Google paper, the sort of partisan nature of the leaders of Google, they weren't just breaking down in tears and melting down over Trump's election. They were also declaring their intention to change their policies in response. You had Kent Walker, their global uh, legal chief, talking about the need to make the populist movement a so-called blip in history. We saw uh, Ruth Porat talking about mobilizing the great strength and resources of Google. So they weren't just talking about how bad the election was. They were talking about what they're going to do about it to make sure it doesn't happen again. With Facebook, it's more... Uh, They blow with the wind, so they're trying to maintain a balance between pressure from Republicans and pressure from the Democrats and from their own employees. But because Facebook is such a left-wing place, the left gradually wins out. That's what's been slowly banning more and more people from the platform. Um, Just yesterday, they announced that they're designating the shooting in Kenosha that Kyle Rittenhouse was involved in as a mass murder, and they won't allow people to defend him on the platform, even though he hasn't been convicted yet. And uh, certainly the videos that came out of that suggests uh, the legal fight is going to be um, is not uh, not clear cut against him. Let's fold in Twitter, too. It, it seems to me Twitter is a bit of an outlier when we talk about the, the big tech companies, because uh, Twitter is more sort of um, media and so-called influencers in their own echo chambers. It, it doesn't seem to have the same persuasive capacity as Google or Facebook. It just doesn't have the same audience, and certainly not as big. No, no, unless people use it. The impact of Twitter is not generally uh, that big in terms of persuading large numbers of people. It is very influential in terms of sort of birthing political movements. So lots of political movements that uh, grew because of Twitter. Black Lives Matter is one of them. President Trump has used Twitter very effectively to bypass the mainstream media and uh, get his message out there to his supporters. And then obviously it's shared to other platforms as well. Here's one of the most dangerous things social media companies and tech giants are doing at the moment. It's not just the uh, the overt censorship that we know about, you know, the people getting banned, the messages getting censored. You know, we see that that's out in the open. More dangerous is the covert censorship, the censorship you don't see. That's what goes on in the back end of these companies to determine you know, whether your post is going to appear at the top of people's feeds as they log into these platforms or if it's just going to be buried and barely anyone, any people will see it. A lot of journalists complain that you know, right-wing media and conservatives do too well on Facebook, and they use engagement numbers to justify that case because conservatives have higher engagement on Facebook than their left-wing competitors. But engagement doesn't show you how many uh, non-partisans, how many non-followers are seeing that content. It just shows you what the fans are doing. So we don't know if these conservative messages are reaching people in the middle of the road, undecided people at all. And that's the real danger that big tech poses in this selection. You know, I've been talking to sources inside these companies, inside Facebook, Google, Twitter, four years. I've interviewed a lot of them for the book. And they all say the same thing, that after the election in every single one of these companies, there was a huge panic. It wasn't just Google. 
what they did was establish all these new departments to tackle things, you know, like so-called fake news, so-called misinformation, so-called election integrity, all these words and priorities of big tech, they emerged right after the election. And uh, one of my sources on Facebook told me the people who joined those efforts inside the company, almost all of them were militantly anti-Trump. And, and we've seen uh, them uh, in their own words on some of the undercover videos that James O'Keefe at Project Veritas has, do- has done. I mean, these minders, the engineers, uh, the people that you're talking about in combination with the purge that's happened at these big tech companies, too. If you are the nail that's sticking up like James Damore at Google or Palmer Lucky at Facebook, you're gone. Absolutely. My sources inside these companies are generally conservative. They can't object to what's going on. So no one is speaking out against this as the left wing of inside these companies influence the, the features of these companies more and more, make them more and more biased. An algorithm is not going to be unbiased as the people who create it, the people who program it are not unbiased. You know, if the people telling an algorithm how to recognize hate speech are from the radical left, it's going to categorize a lot of ordinary Republicans as engaging in hate speech. And that's what we've seen. That's why we see so many uh, prominent Republicans often getting allegedly mistakenly suspended for hate speech because these algorithms are just getting more and more biased. And it's going to start happening to everyone because soon enough, everyone's posts will be automatically scanned by these AI algorithms. I wonder if the antitrust look and the discussions of uh, antitrust action against uh, some of the, the big companies, uh, Google and Facebook in particular, but, but uh, and, and Apple as well, did, has that had a chilling effect on any of this conduct at all? Because absent that, right, I mean, there's nothing that can be done with respect to their conduct or will be done between now and November 3rd. So in terms of influencing this election, we, we've essentially ceded this territory to them. Yeah, there's certainly no time to fix this before the election. The Republicans really dropped the ball. They had control of Congress and the White House at the start of the Trump presidency. That was the moment to start changing the law and holding these tech companies accountable. A lot of conservatives, especially, you know, establishment conservatives inside the Beltway, many of whom are funded by these big tech companies, make the bogus argument that you can't interfere in the free market, these are free market entities. It's not true. They actually owe their position, their dominant position in the marketplace to uh, special legal privileges they got from Congress in the 1990s. So much of the debate around changing the law revolves around changing those special legal privileges. I don't think you call it a free market when they owe their position to uh, special handouts and perks they got from the government. Alam Bakari, senior tech correspondent at Breitbart News, author of the soon-to-be-released Deleted Big Tech's Battle to Erase the Trump Movement and Steal the Election. I'm sure you can pre-order that on all the appropriate sites. Uh, Alam, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Great to be on. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Transitioning from our discussion of uh, big tech with Alan Bakari to uh, talking about big city mayors like Andrew Cuomo. Big tough guys. Big tough guys. Andrew Cuomo, erstwhile bedwetter, becomes a big tough guy when he talks about Trump these days. You know, he does the same thing that Chris Cuomo tries to do in his show, Fredo. Andrew uh, responding to this uh, tweet that President Trump sent out last night. 
My administration will do everything in its power to prevent weak mayors and lawless cities from taking federal dollars while they let anarchists harm people, burn buildings and ruin lives and businesses. We're putting them on notice today. Say he signed a five page memo to President Trump yesterday, ordering federal agencies to detail funds that can be redirected from Seattle as well as other cities. Well, I'd say to some extent it's about damn time. I mean, we were supposed to defund sanctuary cities over lax immigration policy that made many of these big cities unsafe. This is obviously taking it to a whole new level. And Andrew Cuomo is not happy. So the uh, name calling ensues. Uh, He's going to defund New York City. Everything that he could possibly do in his power to hurt New York City, he has done. Except one thing. Uh, this is on top of salt, which stole $14 billion from New York. Look, the best thing he did for New York City was leave. Good riddance. Let him go to Florida. Be careful not to get COVID. Oh, very nice thought. I'm sure it's genuine, too. Oh, Florida, right, because that's a state where COVID's running wild. What's the uh, death toll in Florida as compared to New York per capita basis? Any way you want to describe it. How about uh, in uh, the nursing home settings? And by the way, just on the COVID score, before I get to salt and some of the other things, uh, Vox.com, how New York Governor Andrew Cuomo failed, then succeeded on COVID-19. Stephen Miller uh, tweeting out over at Red Steez in uh, response to the Vox piece. He killed everyone, and then there was no one left to kill. That's about it. What are the estimates? Since we can't get uh, Cuomo to do any sort of audit to make a determination, estimating between six and 11,000, I've seen, nursing home patients, residents, who died as uh, at least a, uh, the, the proximate cause, at least the proximate cause being his reintroduction of infected patients by mandate, reintroduction of infected nursing home patients into nursing homes where then COVID spread like wildfire. It's remarkable to me. America's governor, Andrew Cuomo, proceeded over the largest outbreak and the most casualties. And I'm not putting all of that at the doorstep of Andrew Cuomo, of course, because I'm a rational human being, unlike those suggesting that all 180,000 people who died as a result of COVID, just to use the CDC number, or the actually probably the world of meters numbers, more accurate CDC lags a bit, but... Um, ascribing all those deaths to President Trump. You know, if uh, Joe Biden had been in the White House or Hillary Clinton, zero people would have died effectively is what they're saying. It's absurd. And so it's absurd to bring this all at Andrew Cuomo's doorstep as well. But it's not nearly as absurd as the things Andrew Cuomo is saying and the things he's otherwise getting away with. And just as a quick tangent, salt stole money from New York by allowing people or by capping the uh, what 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 uh, individuals could d- deduct on their federal tax returns. That's stealing money. Uh, you're in charge of state government. You're the executive of state government, Cuomo, not President Trump. And and President Trump's the executive of the federal government. And by the way, the tax reform pass uh, legislation that animated those caps passed by House of Congress. So it's all on the up and up. It's all constitutional and everything. <laughs> Stole money. The money that we couldn't get from our taxpayers because of tax relief from the federal level is stolen money 
from Andrew Cuomo. It's a remarkable statement. It's a telling one. It's all Trump's fault. Due to Trump's negligence, it was his negligence that allowed the virus to ambush New York. Mm -hmm. Boy, that's a very different song that Andrew Cuomo is singing now than he was singing just a few months ago. Right? Same thing with Phil Murphy in New Jersey. Same thing with Gavin Newsom in California. Thanking the president, the administration for the response. The resources that were provided New York, I I guess that was returning some of the stolen money in the form of resources for covid response. This is Andrew Cuomo talking about the Navy hospital and the Javits Center makeshift hospital, not to mention the ventilators and the other personal protective equipment. Government facilitates people's actions, right? Uh, We had to double the hospital capacity in New York State. Uh, That's what all the experts said. Uh, President brought in the Army Corps of Engineers. They built uh, 2,500 beds at Javits that uh, Michael and Northwell were operating. It was a phenomenal accomplishment. Uh, Close to 1,000 people have gone through Javits. Luckily, we didn't need the 2,500 beds, but all the projections said we did need it, and more, by the way. Uh, So these were just extraordinary efforts and acts of mobilization. And uh, the federal government stepped up and was a great partner. And I'm the first one to say it. Uh, We needed help and they were there. State and local governments were fantastic. The hospital system was fantastic. fantastic. New Yorkers were fantastic. And that is an undeniable fact. Just to look at what they said was going to happen. CDC, Coronavirus Task Force, Cornell, McKinsey, all of them. And they had a line up here. And the actual line is down here. What do you owe the variants to? Heroic efforts on behalf of people as facilitated by government, federal and state. Federal and state. And who's the executive of the federal government again? Who was it back uh, just a few months ago? That was Andrew Cuomo then, and this is Andrew Cuomo now. It came here from Europe, January, February, March. He did nothing until March. March 15th is when he did the European travel ban. We know for a fact, says the CDC, his CDC, says Dr. Fauci, we know for a fact the virus came here from Europe, January, February, and March, and he missed it. He is the cause of COVID in New York. Trump is the cause of COVID in New York. The cause of it. By the way, uh, in March, wasn't that still when Nancy Pelosi was talking about coming down to Chinatown and enjoying everything? Nancy, uh, uh, Bill de Blasio and and his uh, public health director at the time. All systems go for St. Patrick's Day festivities in New York City. He's the cause of covid in New York. Didn't come from China, came from Europe. That's Andrew Cuomo. Now saying that Trump would need an army to safely walk the streets of New York City today, you know, because he's so unpopular. It's a statement. Mm -hmm. He's responsible for it all. He caused the COVID outbreak in New York, President Trump did. And we're supposed to take him seriously? 
This is America's governor. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Joe Biden uh, reversed course and decided to go up to Kenosha and meet with uh, the Blake family. Jacob Blake Sr. put uh, new scrutiny on Mr. Brussels sprouts. And uh, Mr. Brussels sprouts says some interesting things to say on social media. Uh, Heavy.com, not a right wing outlet. Uh, captured some of his comments about uh, hating Whitey and how the Jews control the media. Very interesting, hateful, ignorant statements. I wonder if that will be discussed at all. Contrast that, as I've said from the outset, with the very reasoned, thoughtful, temperate statements from Jacob Blake's mom. She's been really wonderful, really a positive influence on this entire discussion. And I I can sort of see why uh, Mrs. Blake uh, no longer wanted to hang out with Mr. Blake. Good grief, that guy. Uh, But anyway, uh, going up to Kenosha, particularly in opposition to uh, local officials recommendation was supposed to be a real big negative for Trump. Apparently didn't turn out that way because now Biden felt compelled to follow suit, despite the fact that uh, those local officials, although being Democrats, a little bit more understanding, still prefer that he come next week. But uh, they understand his visit because, you know, fairness and all. Sure. Uh, Joe Biden, his uh, Pittsburgh speech. Uh, will be remembered, uh, particularly, it seems to me, for this line, regardless of electoral outcome, they looked at differently depending on the outcome, but this line in particular. His failure to call on his own supporters to stop acting as an armed militia in this country shows how weak he is. Does anyone believe there'll be less violence in America if Donald Trump is reelected? Two things there. Uh, it's Trump's fault because uh, he's let uh, Trump supporters run wild in lieu of law enforcement. Uh, But, of course, the mayors of the towns in question have had law enforcement stand down or been opposed to the necessary help from the federal level in order to maintain peace on their streets. Number two, will any uh, does anybody believe there'll be less violence if he's reelected? In other words, if he's reelected, you're going to get more violence. So consider that when you make your choice and make it wisely. It's a nice protection racket that uh, Joe Biden is running on the American electorate. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Adam Mill, an attorney specializing in labor and employment and public administration law, contributor to The Federalist and Am Greatness, amgreatness.com. Adam, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dan. Uh, yeah, what about uh, the, the Biden speech in Pittsburgh and uh, whether or not that was a uh, an important moment for him in terms of something he can point to to say, look, I I condemned the rioting and the violence, so I'm all good on that front now. Yeah, uh, I did a piece in American Greatness on this, and I think that you absolutely nailed it. It almost stole my thunder a little bit that what this really was was a threat to America, that what Joe Biden did in his speech, and I go through line by line and explain how he did this, was that he's blaming Trump for the riots. And the the formula for this is Trump is being Trump. He's the president. And while he's president, that's upsetting people. That's upsetting Biden supporters. And the Biden supporters are getting so upset that they have no choice but to start rioting, looting, burning things down and all of that. So as long as President Trump 
is president, we have to live with these riots. Now, remember that when you go to the booth in November, uh, because we know that if he stays president and he gets reelected to another term, you know, my voters are just going to get really, really upset again, and they're going to do some more burning and looting. And of course, you know, that's not just a threat, but it's also excusing, it's validating violence. He would not criticize NTP. He would not criticize the individuals who are looting. He said, you know, it's wrong. The actions are wrong, but he's but he connected it right back to saying it's wrong because Donald Trump is making them do it by making them angry. Well, that's just an apology for political violence. I mean, it's this is these are bad times where we've got a major party. I mean, just imagine flipping the script and, and Trump were going around apologizing for mobs of looters and people being violent in, in our inner cities, people getting killed, businesses being burned down. And he said, well, you got to vote with me or else these people are going to continue. I mean, that, that would not be tolerated and it shouldn't be tolerated in the other direction either. It's sort of like uh, a Hillary Clinton style uh, acceptance of responsibility. I take responsibility generally, but not specifically. So I take responsibility for the position I have, say, as secretary of state. But I don't take responsibility specifically for Benghazi. You know, it's, it's that's the that's the artifice. And it's sort of the same thing. I condemn violence generally, but I won't condemn violence by Antifa or Black Lives Matter or whoever specifically. I won't talk about a particular city. I won't talk about a particular mayor. I won't talk about a particular domestic terrorist. Yeah. And, and speaking of Hillary Clinton, I think she's just pouring gasoline on this fire even more so. She's going around telling people that Biden shouldn't concede under any circumstances. Like right. even if he loses the election, he shouldn't concede. She's telling people that it's going to go on for a long time. We are basically being promised lawyers and looting and violence if if there's not a clear victory for Biden in November. And I just, you know, I wonder, is this, is this, is America willing to knuckle under that to that threat? Are we willing to say, Okay, you win. You're scaring us too much. I mean, I hope I hope they won't. But that seems to be the strategy they're employing. And I think that's the operative question. I want to continue exploring that question when we come back, as well as uh, include uh, a piece you wrote about um, the Senate intelligence report on election collusion. Uh, More with Adam Mill, attorney specializing in labor, employment and public administration law, contributor to the Federalist and AmGreatness.com. We'll be back right after this. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Adam Mill, an attorney specializing in labor and employment and public administration law, contributor to thefederalist.com, as well as American Greatness, amgreatness.com. We're talking about uh, Biden's speech in Pittsburgh, is visit to Kenosha, the general approach he's taking to the uh, rioting, afflicting cities across America, and not just big ones anymore after the uh, rioting and destruction wrought on Kenosha. And uh, uh, Adam, I wanted to sort of get your take on this return to normalcy campaign that Biden is trying to run with uh, the not so subtle threats that we were discussing before the break. And um, and and as we were just talking before you joined us about uh, about Andrew Cuomo going apoplectic over Trump's tweet to defund cities that are indulging anarchists and rioters. Is that the right response from Trump? I mean, he he only is twofold. One, I will provide federal support, but I mean, they have to ask. They have to want federal law enforcement support, as Tony Evers in Wisconsin ultimately did. And then the rioting stopped. Uh but if, if Ted Wheeler and Kate Brown in Portland and Oregon don't want it, then OK, they don't want it. 
that other than protecting federal property? Is that the right response? And then secondarily, this effort to say, look, I'm not going to use federal resources to underwrite lawlessness in your city. And so we'll look at what we can do under the law to redirect resources, limited taxpayer dollars to where they are going to be used responsibly. No, I don't think it's the right uh, approach. I think what Trump should be doing is the same thing we'd be doing in any war zone. We would be staging refugee camps and helping the people flee from from these terrible conditions. <laughs> and that's what, you know, many. No, I mean, it's it, I'm half kidding, but I'm half not kidding. There's supposedly a million people trying to flee from from New York right now. Uh, the the um, U-Haul cannot restock its its supply quickly enough. Rents are are crashing. Uh, businesses are refusing to re- renew their leases. It's a t- it's a, you know it's a, uh, an apocalypse in New York. And if I were if I were Trump, I would just say, you know what, we're going to set up a program to relocate uh, refugees from New York, from California, any other part of the country that has stopped being free and safe. People shouldn't have to live that way. Okay, I can't come in, but you can't keep your your citizens there. That's what I would do. Yeah, although and, and can I, although, although, although I like, yeah, go go ahead. Uh, I mean, just as a quick comment, although you know, I, it, like fleeing Chicago for me, I, I'd like him to you know buy my condo at market price too while he's at it. I don't think that's going to happen. But anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So just a bone to pick with uh, with Como. I mean, it's it's really you know we're in this weird fog right now where. It's just, you hear these things and they're blatantly untrue right. and people just repeat them as though they're true. But with Como, uh, you may not be aware of this, but the Department of Justice has opened up an inquiry against the four governors that ordered uh, COVID patients back into their nursing homes, the state controlled nursing homes. And that's New York, Pennsylvania, Michigan and New Jersey. And if you look at all four of those states, they have something else in common, which is the very highest of the deaths per million counts. And they lost 40 percent of their deaths to nursing homes. And what the Department of Justice has done, they're invoking a statute which makes it illegal to not properly care for the health and health and safety of confined persons. It applies to nursing homes, um, institutions where people go for mental health and, and, uh, and also prisons. If you're confined in a state institution, which a state nursing home is, uh, you have a right to certain health precautions. And the Department of Justice has opened up a, an inquiry into whether uh, Como violated that. The New York Times sets Como's death count of nursing homes, excess deaths in nursing homes at 6,000. 6,000, you know, and the New York Times is pretty friendly to, to yeah. Como, too. I've seen estimates as, as high as 11,000, which uh, we were discussing before uh, you joined us. And no, I, I, that is exactly right. And and, the, and the Cuomo, from the beginning, there's no need to audit uh, what happened at the nursing homes. That's just going to, you know, get us off track in terms of combating the virus and all these other transparent cover stories to try and misdirect people's attention away from those catastrophic decisions. Uh, and meanwhile, he's out, you know, saying that uh, Trump allowed COVID to spread in New York. Trump is, is the reason New York got ambushed by COVID. I mean, just the most ridiculous statements. But as you say, we're in this uh, time of so much fog, I guess, and so many people making so many ridiculous statements. It's tough to keep track of them. And I wanted to transition to another such person. Uh, he is, uh, you know, at the sort of the top of the hit list for such statements. Adam Schiff. He made a statement over the weekend that didn't get enough play either because of the stiff competition for ridiculous statements. But Adam Schiff talking about uh, the rioting in uh, places like Kenosha, you know, it's it's not it's not Black Lives Matter. It's not Antifa. Of course, it's the Russians. And that's another angle into Trump being responsible because, you know, he's colluding with the Russians uh, in terms of what we can expect from the Russians or what the Russians are doing. 
The Russians four years ago, Dana, exploited Black Lives Matter. They set up their own false flags online uh, to try to divide people along racial lines. Are they doing uh, and it now? We have to, uh, uh, they are, once again, uh, doing their best uh, in social media, in their overt media, and other means to grow these divisions again. So you see, uh, Adam, it's it's not Black Lives Matter, that Marxist organization that's sowing seeds of racial discord. It's the Russians and and by extension. Trump. Yeah. And Biden tried something similar. He said that the uh, that right wing militias were infiltrating these peaceful protests and they were the ones who, you know, were causing the, the, the harm and the shooting and, and all that stuff. Of course, just hours and hours of video to contradict those claims. And, and as far as the Russians, you know, uh I don't know who's behind uh, Black Lives Matter, but I think that there's a lot of money. I mean, there's something like a billion dollars that has flowed into Black Lives Matter uh, since the, um, uh, the, the George um, death. And, uh, and a lot of it is coming from corporations, but a lot of people don't know where a lot of it is coming from. I don't know. Maybe the Russians are behind Black Lives Matter. Uh, we should investigate. I'm all for that. Well, they, yeah, yeah, right. They, well, they, 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 uh, some of the Russians, uh, you know, being um, – uh, former Soviets uh, with a particular uh, world, uh, particular philosophy of the world, share the same Marxist philosophy that the Black Lives Matter founders do, Patrice Cullors and and uh, right. and the rest of them do. So uh, perhaps, yeah, perhaps, perhaps they are. Uh, well, and there have been a couple of Chinese shipments of arms that have been interrupted uh, in the past uh, uh, in the past year. Well, actually, more than a couple. There have been hundreds of these. Of, of Chinese illegal Chinese arms have been shipped to uh, American cities, and a lot of people question: Are those, you know, are those being used to arm a resistance against this country? Hmm. He is Adam Mill. He's an attorney specializing in labor and employment and public administration law. Contributor to thefederalist.com and amgreatness.com as well. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show from our discussion with uh, Adam Mill about uh, refugee camps, American cities being turned into refugee camps. Uh, How about uh, colleges being turned into extraordinary rendition sites? Listen to some of this. From uh, parents of an LSU student, Alex Berenson tweeted this out. We dropped our only child off at LSU in mid-August. As you can imagine, taking your child to college thousands of miles away is difficult. We're a close family. My husband and I, although proud and excited for him, very sad to say goodbye. I think LSU is doing a fair job at handling the situation, but it's heartbreaking all the same. They staggered the door move in. As a result, most of the floors were empty. We had two two hours to unpack and set up his room. Once we left, we're not allowed back into his room. He spent his first nights at college alone as his roommate had not arrived. Cafeterias are closed. Pick up meals to eat alone in your dorm. All the common areas are closed. No hanging out. No guests in your room. No meeting the guys on your floor. As you can imagine, we're sad for him. To leave your child basically alone in a strange new world was agonizing. Then add the limited opportunities to meet friends. No clubs. No in-person activities. All of his classes are online. One class has no instruction at all. He's supposed to read chapters in the book and take an online test. 
There's education for you. He did go through a virtual fraternity rush, virtual, and has met a few guys, but they're not allowed to gather in groups of more than 25, so he's not attended any chapter meetings. I could go on and on about the absurd rules the schools are imposing on our kids, but really, what really scares me is that LSU and other schools are forcing kids into quarantine if they test positive. I'm on the LSU Parents Facebook, and the post about kids being ordered to pack a bag and being dumped in an old dorm for 14 days of solitary confinement are heartbreaking. If they have close contact and no negative tests, don't release you from quarantine, parenthetically. If they have close contact with someone who tests positive, you're ordered to stay by yourself for 14 days. The university turns off the room meal cards so they can't access their dorm rooms or use the cafeteria. Food is delivered once a day. Kids are not allowed to bring their own bedding, but they're expected to sit in a dorm room with no human contact for 14 days. The agony in the post from parents who are across country or overseas are hard to read. They're desperate to help their children. Calls to LSU seem to fall on deaf ears. I've advised our son never to be tested, but if he does come into contact with someone, he will be ordered to quarantine. He's a social kid and we'll do everything in our power to bring him home. But in what universe is it acceptable to put a person into solitary confinement, especially an 18 year old kid on their own for the first time? In what universe? This one. At University of Illinois, a a nasty, threatening email was sent out about increased enforcement of COVID-19 safety guidelines, Uh, chastising people who have been ratted out for not social distancing, for uh, gatherings that exceed the allotted number of people to gather and so forth. We believe damage done by these individuals can be reversed, but it must be done quickly it will require those of you who have been working so hard this semester to shoulder even more responsibility. Students who violate our safety policies, who fail to comply with directions from our public health officials, who engage in unsafe, unsafe activities, as we define it, will be asked to leave this university. In what kind of world is this happening? This one, America, 2020, college campuses and in so many other walks of life. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again to close out the week tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.